This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning. Great to have you here. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors, so if I haven't met you yet, uh, sorry about that, but uh, it's great to have you with us, and uh, I just want to welcome you today. And we are in a, uh, we just began last week a series, uh, we're teaching through the book of Colossians. That's a New Testament book that uh, Paul wrote to a church um, in Colossae. We did, we did the introduction last week, learned a little bit about the church, and uh, learned a little bit about um, what, what had happened in this church to form the church. And today, we're going to be looking at the second passage, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. The theme is how to pray for others. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, under the seat in front of you. You can grab that, turn to page 572, and then you'll just be able to read along with us and track along. And it's a, it's a passage, it's a, it's a little dense, the passage. Uh, and so it'd be great to read along because you'll be able to track with each word and each phrase. We'll try to talk about most every phrase in the passage today as we, uh, as we apply it. So let me pray as you're turning there and then we will uh, jump in together. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us today, that you've called us as your children, you've called us to hear your word, you teach us through your word, and we believe that every passage of scripture has something to say to every one of us. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to us from this passage, that we would learn what you have for us, that you would apply it to us, and really that you would change us. Lord, we pray that you would Give us knowledge of you, that you would help us to apply that knowledge and give us power to walk it out, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christians are um, people committed to truth. We are a people of truth, and yet we lie. Uh, Christians lie at points, and, and I think the biggest Christian lie Well, I thought of a bunch, but I I think this is the biggest Christian lie. It happens every Sunday. Every Sunday this lie happens, and uh, it's this. It's the nodded head, hmm, yeah. Okay, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. You guys don't, you disagree, or either you feel so convicted the room went silent. (laughs) I'll pray for you. And what's worse, where the lie gets doubly deceptive is when Uh, you completely forget about it when I completely forget about it and you show up next Sunday and you see the person that you said you would be praying for. You see him across the room and then very quickly you say, God, please heal Joe's elbow. And then you walk up and say, hey, Joe, how's the elbow? I prayed for you. Uh, Literally 15 seconds ago uh, across the room. I'm feeling like I'm the only one who experiences this because everybody else is like, what what are you talking about? Every time I say I'm going to pray, I always pray. For people, if you put it on the card, we will always pray for you because we will not forget. Um, But oftentimes our intentions are good. We want to pray for people, but we forget. Or maybe we don't know how to pray for people. Someone says, hey, could you pray? Or I've got this need. And sometimes we're just unsure. How, How exactly should I pray for that? I heard one guy talking about how... Uh, he, his friend had asked him to pray and he just wasn't sure how to pray. His friend said, hey, could you pray for my son? He said, sure, what, what's up with your son? He said, well, he made it to the finals of the karate tournament. 
And the guy was saying, man, I, I have no idea. How do you pray for that? Just what do you, Lord, as little Connor steps on the mat, would you please guide his foot to the face of the other child and render him unconscious? He was saying, I just don't, how do you even pray for that? I don't know how to pray that your kid beat somebody up. I, this doesn't seem very godly. So sometimes we don't pray, not only because we have forgotten, but because maybe we don't really know how do we pray for people. Do we just toss up a generic, hey, God bless so-and-so and God bless so-and-so? Or is there a way that we can really pray for others? And the passage we're looking at today, Paul offers what I believe is a model prayer for praying for others. Obviously, Jesus gives the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. But here, uh, Paul models for us how we can pray for others. He's praying for newer Christians in this passage, but this is a prayer that is effective not only for newer Christians, but for anyone that you might pray for, your children, your small group, uh, any other Christians, this passage will serve you well because it gives an outline for uh, really what to pray for others. I know he's praying for a specific group of people in a specific context, but I think it's really relevant for all of us. So I'm going to read it together and then uh, I'm going to read it and then we will uh, we'll break it down and seek to apply it. Colossians 1 verses 9 through 14. Uh, this is God's word. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Okay, it is easy to get lost in the weeds of this prayer, but it's, it's really a prayer for two things, and so this will be very easy to remember. I'm going to point out the two things that Paul is really praying for, and then we'll look at all the phrases that connect to it to sort of fill it out, but he's really praying for two things. He's praying for knowledge, and he's praying for power. So already you have something more than bless so-and-so. He's praying for knowledge, and he's praying for power for these Christians. So let's look first at the prayer uh, for knowledge. Um, first of all, he begins by saying, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So first of all, Paul's letting them know that he regularly prays for them. Now he says we haven't ceased to pray. He doesn't mean this is unending every second of every day he's praying for the Colossians. What he means is perhaps we were praying for your conversion. You got converted. We began to pray there, but we haven't ceased. We're still praying. What is he praying? They're praying that he's praying that will grow and mature. So he's still praying for the Colossians. I haven't stopped praying. So that's really a great insight is that to begin with, Paul is regularly praying, sort of without stopping praying for these people, not just when they were first converted, because he believes that prayer makes a difference. 
I mean, he believes that God is going to answer these prayers. And so he is praying because he believes that the things he prays, according to God's will, the Lord will answer and will make a difference in these people's lives. That's probably another reason we frequently don't pray for others. Maybe we forget, maybe we don't know how, or maybe we really question whether it's going to make a difference. Um, but it does make a difference, and that's why he prays. And the first thing he prays is for knowledge. I've unceasingly prayed for you that you may be filled, verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they will know God's will. Now, this is not, he's not praying what Sort of, sort of modern way of understanding God's will that's common sometimes in the church today, which is sort of a treasure hunt trying to make a decision and find out exactly what God wants us to do. So when we face a decision in life, um, oftentimes we'll try to read signs or put out a, fle- a fleece or get impressions and then come up and try to figure out is God's will behind door number one, door number two, or door number three, and then try to pick it. That is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about God's will is more of a g- general sort of description of God's design for the Christian life. So you have now met Christ, and I'm praying you will know his will, not that you'll know which door to pick in some kind of uh, should I do this or do that, but rather that you will know what is God's plan, what is God's purpose for your life, what is God's purpose for the church. He prays they will know, they will know how God desires them to live. That it's not enough just to become a Christian. They are new, new Christians, but he wants them to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so they will need, what does he pray? All spiritual wisdom and understanding. You're starting out on a lifetime following the Lord. And so I want you to have wisdom and understanding. Spiritual, that adjective means from the Spirit. So I want you to have, by the Holy Spirit, wisdom and understanding. So you'll know how to follow the Lord with your life. You'll understand how to navigate life the way God wants you to live. That's his prayer. And so that means to, what does he say? Walk in a manner worth, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So I want you to know God's, I want you to know God. I want you to know his plan, how he calls us to follow him as disciples. And that means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He wants them to understand the gospel, what Jesus has done for them. He's not saying make yourself worthy. That's impossible. But he's saying, recognize that you were not worthy in and of yourselves, yet God has reached down to you and rescued you. He's given you new life in Christ in the gospel. We talked about that last week. You are in Christ by his mercy and by his grace. And so now, realizing what Christ has done for you, live a life that reflects that. Live like a person that's been rescued by Jesus, that's been brought from death to life. I'm praying you'll be people who aren't living in foolishness but wisdom, who aren't walking around in the dark but are walking around in the light because you've been rescued from the darkness. He's given you a new life and a new purpose, so I'm praying that you will live in a way that reflects that. Live worthy of the Lord. Live in a way that that recognizes what he's done, that reflects what he's done, that you're living in the light of what he has done. Put simply, he prays they will know God's will and live it out. He wants them to know Jesus, his will, and to live it out. 
Now we tend to separate knowledge from action. See, he prays for knowledge, but he's immediately talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about action. We tend to think, well, there's knowledge and then there's, there's things to know and there's things to do. There's things to know and there's things to do. But biblically, knowledge doesn't work that way. Biblical knowledge, knowledge of Christ is, is never just sort of for the sake of knowing. It's always to lead to action. The Bible doesn't separate knowledge and action. And you see that right here because he's praying that their knowledge of God's will will do what? It'll direct their walk with God. Their knowledge of God will direct their walk with God. That's his prayer. And as they follow Christ, he prays that they will live, walk in a manner, walk in the Bible, walk is a, is a metaphor for following Christ. It's a metaphor, the walk, the Christian walk is a metaphor for living for Jesus, obeying him, being a disciple of him, embracing, taking up your cross and following him. Walk means, you, it, the walk is a picture of following God. So he's praying that they will know his will and that that will direct their walk And I love this. He prays this for them. As they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing, fully pleasing to him, he prays they will bear fruit in every good work. He prays they will bear fruit in every good work. He's praying for good works through these believers. Now, we are not saved by good works. We are saved by grace. We're saved by the gift of what Christ has done for us. But though we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. The knowledge of Christ is to transform us internally once we meet him. The gospel is to transform us internally so that we live a new lifestyle. So that we're, as we always read Romans 6 when we baptize people, so that we are raised to walk in newness of life, the text says. And so he's praying that they will walk in new life, that they will bear fruit with their good works. So let's just review, because again, this is really dense uh, content. But he's saying, I'm, I'm praying for you regularly. I'm praying you'll know God's plan for your life. Pray that you'll know what it means to follow Christ. You'll know his will for you. And as you know his will, that will lead you to live a life that reflects his will, reflects what he's done for you. And as you live that life following him, I'm praying you bear fruit in every good work. Every good work. That means not just merely religious acts like being here this morning, that's a good work, but it means all of life live for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Once we are converted, then we are given new life, new purpose, and all of our life is connected to God because we are in Christ, as we talked about last week. So all of life is to be lived for the glory of God and for our neighbor's good. That means every good work certainly could be things like serving the poor, giving sacrificially, helping someone in need, sharing the gospel with a coworker, attending church. Got a good work going right now for you. There you go. So it certainly could involve stuff like that. That's important. But it could also involve things like doing the dishes or coaching your kid's soccer team or creating a spreadsheet or playing the guitar or studying for a test or managing a project at work, or taking a nap, or going for a walk. All of life 
is live for the glory of God. So he wants them to bear fruit in every good work. Whatever they are doing, every work, he's gonna say this later, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're getting to that in chapter three, but there's a foreshadowing of it right here where he says every good work is to bear, I'm praying that you will bear fruit, that it will be meaningful, that it will be connected to God and his plan, his will for you as a disciple. That's what he's praying for, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is really an important point that we're on right now, that God wants you to bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, it's pleasing to him. It's pleasing. He wants you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. He wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to flourish. That's another way of saying it. The divine will for humanity is that we know Christ and that we flourish in life, that we bear fruit with our lives. And that doesn't mean that our circumstances will always be easy. The scripture doesn't teach that we are given a life, that, that bearing fruit doesn't mean ease, that, that flourishing doesn't mean ease. Sometimes our greatest flourishing comes through our most difficult circumstances. Frequently that's the case. I mean, let's consider Paul. Well, what is Paul doing in this letter? Well, Paul is in prison. Paul's fruit-bearing options in terms of going out and doing something really glorious for Jesus, be a missionary somewhere, his fruit-bearing options are really limited. He is in a jail cell, and it wouldn't be like a modern American prison with the amenities that would be offered to someone incarcerated today. He would be in a very difficult situation, maybe chained to a guard, or there was times in his imprisonment he had some coming and going. We don't know exactly which imprisonment this was, uh, so he was able to entertain visitors at points. So it could be that imprisonment, we're not sure. Uh, at any rate, uh, he, is, uh, he has limitations up on him and how he can bear fruit, but what can he do? Well, he can pray, and that's what he's doing, and he's describing, here's how I pray for you. And he can write a letter, and he can send a messenger, and that's about it. He can't do it. What else could he do for the Colossians? He could write a letter, he could pray, he could send a messenger, and that's what he's doing. Paul is going full bore on let me leverage every opportunity I have to bear fruit, to love someone else, to represent Christ, to be faithful, to work hard, to care about others. What can he do? Well, that's all he can do. But I'd say it bore some fruit. We're reading the letter today. It's pretty good shelf life for the letter, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. I would say the Lord used his efforts. Now look at the amazing result of this kind of, um, this pattern that he's talking about. He prays that they will know God, they will live for God, they will bear fruit for God, and what's the result? This is so telling. I never saw this, never thought about this till this week, but this is so telling. So he prays they will know God, they will walk with God, they will bear fruit for God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What's the fruit? More knowledge of God. You'll know him more. So this is the cycle. I'm praying that you will know God 
And I'm praying that once you know God and his plan for you as a disciple, you will walk with him in a manner worthy. And I'm praying that as you walk with a manner worthy, you will bear a ton of fruit. And as you bear a ton of fruit, you're going to know him more. That this is, this is the principle of the rich getting richer. The spiritually rich getting richer. You know him, and when you obey what you know, and when you follow him intentionally, connecting all of your life to him so that you're bearing fruit for him in every good work, not, not, the, not the sacred works, not the spiritual works, but in every good work, as you do that, you will bear fruit, and to those who have, more will be given. You will know him more. It's a cycle. How do you know him? You act on what you know, and then you know him more. If you know him and you fail to act on what you know, James 1 says you deceive yourselves. So this is a sober verse because it's kind of like the rich getting richer. Those who have, having more. Those who know, knowing more when they apply what they know. And though he doesn't say it, I think we could all testify both from personal seasons in our lives and from those we have known that the opposite is true as well. When you know something of God, but you don't then walk in a manner worthy, and then you don't bear fruit, you sort of wither and you know him less. He feels more distant to you. He seems farther away. We drift, and then, then it's like we don't know God at all. We're Christian, but we're just so distant. Our mind is, thinks just like every unbeliever we know, except maybe on Sunday when we show up and sing some songs and hear the word. So the opposite is exactly the truth. That's why, the, that's why he is praying this. I'm praying that you're not just converted, but man, you are leaning in, you are receiving by grace, you are applying, you are walking, you are bearing fruit, because then you're going to increase in knowledge. It's just a circle. And, it, and we can cycle up, so to speak, in, in, in spiritual knowledge and power and intimacy with God and fruitfulness in life, or we can circle down by ignoring him. And that's what he is praying. There's also times in our lives, I'm going to go a bit beyond the text, on that, the cycles in the text, but I'm going to make a comment a bit beyond that this is an experiential comment, is that there are times when that cycle increases and when it does, ride the wave. There are seasons in our life where God is speaking to us more, where the word is alive, where we are walking with him and bearing fruit. In, when, visibly, we're aware how God is using us. He's real. He's convicting us. He's encouraging us. He's strengthening us. He's giving us friendship. He's giving us, in the gospel, he's giving us boldness. In those seasons, man, you want to pour gas on that fire. Because I think spiritual growth is a little bit like looking at a graph of the stock market. And there are times when our spiritual growth feels bullish and there's times when it feels bearish. And when you are in a market, when the bulls are running, you want to, uh, you want to give yourself, you always want to give yourself to the Lord. But there's times like that to pay attention. The reason I say that is because I've talked to a few people recently that are in a time of renewal. Um, and when you are in that time, give yourself to that time. I, in some ways, am still drafting in a renewal from when I was 16 years old today. I, I honestly feel that. I had a season when I was 16 when God became so real to me, so palpably close to me, so intimately, I was so intimately aware of his word and his presence. I was so voraciously hunger, hungry for his scripture 
and fellowship, and, and it changed how I related to others. It, it changed how I would try to perhaps reach out to someone on the margins who needed Christ, or how I would uh, do my schoolwork, or how I would respond to others. How I, it changed my life. And in some ways, I'm still living in, in the good of that. Not that the good old days are behind me, but there is, there's a reality. There are marked seasons in our life, not just when we're young. It can happen when you're old too. There are marked seasons when the knowledge of God and walking closely with God and bearing fruit so there is more knowledge of God happens in an accelerated time. And when that happens broadly in a church or beyond a church, it's called revival. When that happens in a bunch of people who then affect the society around them, and there's a wave of, of what I'm describing happening in a larger group of people, that is called a revival, historically. And there's obviously, hist- I haven't been in a historic revival, I've never been in that, but there are historic times of revival where that takes place. Um, so if you're in that place, please give yourself to the Lord, lean in. But it's not just a prayer for accelerated growth. It's a prayer for all times in our life. That was just a parenthetical comment for free. But in the text, he's talking about generally in our lives, praying for all seasons that there will be ongoing growth and maturity. That's how he's praying for the Colossians. C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, was writing to his friend Penelope Lawson, and he he made what would sound to us perhaps an unusual prayer request, but I want to to read it to you because it's, it's powerful. He said to her, I specially need your prayers because I am like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, traveling across, quote, a plane called ease. Everything without And many things within are marvelously well at present. So I need your prayer. This kind of prayer is something we pray not just as an emergency, but regularly in life. Even when things are at ease in our life, we're to pray, God, help me to know you in ease because I'm likely to miss you in ease. I'm likely to look somewhere else in ease. Help me to respond by then walking in a manner worthy when I'm in at a time of ease. Help me bear great fruit when things are at a time of ease and help me to know you more that cycle. So he prays for knowledge, applied knowledge. That's the first thing. The second thing he prays for is power. Look at verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power. Since the day we heard of you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking what? That you may be strengthened with all power. Ever since we heard of it, we're praying that you will know God's will and live it out, and we're praying that you will experience, be strengthened by God's power. Now, the Christian faith is unique in a number of ways. One way is that it's based on God's work and not our works. The Christian faith is based on what Jesus has done for us. That's the foundation, not what we do for God. We are accepted by God. We have, we're in relationship with God because of what he has done for us in Christ. So we are fundamentally helpless to make ourselves right with God. That's unique. Among religious uh, ideas, that's a unique idea. But here's another unique idea, is that not only are we converted by grace, but we're to live the Christian life by grace as well. So we're dependent on God's power. Now we apply ourselves, both are true. 
Once you become a Christian, you are to apply yourself uh, to the Lord, to the Lord's uh, will. Um, you are to work out your salvation because he is at work in you. So it's both. We, we are participative uh, in our growth in Christ. But it is still foundationally something that is by his power and by his grace. And that's why he prays for these believers. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. You need the power of God is what he's praying. You need God's power to walk in a manner worthy. You need God's power to bear fruit in, in every good work. You need God's power to please him in all ways that you live and act. You need God's power to know him and then to know him more. So this is all by God's power. Two, fundam- two basic prayer requests. Pray for, he prays for knowledge, applied knowledge, and he prays for power. And they're going to need that power because they're going to need to endure. Look what he says. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Uh, As we get further into this book, we're going to see that there are some false teachers in Colossae. They are battling some uh, false teaching and they're going to need endurance to walk through that test. They're going to need patience and endurance. Knowledge that leads to life change and power to keep going. That's endurance. You need, pow- you need knowledge that leads you to a life, a changed life, and then you need power to keep walking with Christ. That's enduring. God has given each of us callings in our lives that will require endurance. And as we endure, God bears fruit through us in us and through us. In many ways, that's God's plan for changing the world. It's right here. It's through the gospel being proclaimed and lived out through his people who know him and who endure by his power, giving testimony to him. That's that's the way God works in the world, to bear fruit in us and through us, especially during times of difficulty. That is endurance. In, In David Garland's commentary on this passage, he tells up, Uh, a fascinating story, really a a moving story um, about endurance and how God places us in various callings in life so that through our endurance, the gospel can be on display. And he tells the story of a young girl named Tessie. She was one of four African-American girls who initiated school desegregation in New Orleans in 1961. He writes, they were six years old and for months, federal marshals had to escort them to their school. Each morning they endured adults spitting out obscenities at them as they were led through a crowd of protesters. More than once, someone in the mob yelled out a death threat to six-year-old girls. One day, when Tessie was worn down by the strain and tried to beg off going to school, her grandmother gave her an inspiring pep talk. Her grandmother lamented that she could not go with her and, quote, call those people to my side and read to them from the Bible and tell them, remind them that he's up there, Jesus, watching over all of us. It don't matter who you are and what your skin color is. And, and there's an excerpt of a, of a quote of what the grandmother tells Tessie. He, she tells her, you belong in that McDonough school, and there will be a day when everyone knows that. 
Even those poor folks, Lord, I pray for them, those poor, poor folks who are out there shouting their heads off at you, you're one of the Lord's people. He's put his hand on you. He's given a call to you, a call to service in his name. There's all those people scared out of their minds, and by the time you're ready to leave McDonough's school, they'll be calmed down, and they won't be paying you no mind at all, child. And I'll guarantee you, that's how it will be. Garland writes of that word endurance, power for endurance. He says, we need a sense of calling to service, not just to friends, but to those who mistreat us. We need to see things as an opportunity to serve God rather than as trouble that we would like to avoid. We should view ourselves as more than simply the beneficiaries of God's grace. We are benefactors through whom God's grace reaches others. All Christians are called to endure various circumstances and situations. And we're called to endure those for the glory of God, but also for the good of our neighbor. For it's where the gospel shines through. And the Colossians will need that. And so he prays for strength that you will endure and be patient. That you may know God that you may be empowered to walk with him. And then he prays for them to to finish it out, that with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he prays that they will endure that they will be patient, and that they will have a life of thanks. Now, often when we think about the power of God, that's probably not what we think of. If we, if we, if we advertised in popular Christian circles, we're having a conference on the power of God. And we had a video, and it was moving, and it was pumped up music. Power! You know, if it was that kind of a thing. I'm feeling motivated for that commercial. (laughs) And then everybody showed up and we're going to talk about enduring and suffering. We're going to talk about patience and we're going to talk about giving thanks. As soon as I bowed my head with every head bowed and every eye closed to open the seminar, many people will be walking out the back door because they didn't want that. They wanted power for health and power to accumulate wealth and power for all of my relationships to be perfect and power for me to be a leader and to be respected and loved and power for all of my... (laughs) When Paul talks about power, he's talking about suffering. I'm praying that you will have power to endure, power for patience. And then this one, I'm praying for power that you will with joy give thanks to God. Do you ever thought about that? You need the power of God to be a thankful person. If you're going to live gratefully in light of the gospel, it will take power because complaining, critiquing, judging, grumbling requires no spiritual power. It just requires the flesh. But if you're going to not be given to grumbling and complaining and judging and, compl- and critiquing, then you're going to have to have a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to have the Holy Spirit renewing your mind through the scripture and pointing your mind to Jesus so that you see what you have to be grateful for 
and then you live in the good of that. Cynicism is the result of a lack of living in the power of the Spirit. Christians who don't live in the lack of the power of the Spirit, we end up, well, we end up cynical oftentimes. And cynics don't bear fruit in every good work. That's one thing that's for sure. No cynic ever bore fruit in every good work. They criticize those who do. It used to be that cynicism was reserved for old kind of crotchety, get off my lawn, uh, that, that generation perhaps. But I don't think that's the case anymore. I think the age level for first uh, experience of onset cynicism is, is lowering. I think it's lowering significantly. So that now, I, I mean, I used to think if you were young, you were idealistic and hopeful. And if you were old, you're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. You're cynical and hopeless. But now there are many young people that are not idealistic and hopeful. Plenty of millennials have been soured by cynicism. And they're failing, even Christians, failing to live a life of joyful thanks. And we need, the, we need the Spirit to help us, to lead us to repentance, and to give us new eyes to see things, not from the culture's perspective, uh, but, from, but from God's perspective. And I say that not to pick on millennials, because I would pick on my generation too when I'm saying that. I'm just saying, you're just starting to act like I do a little earlier, that's all I'm saying, or that I'm tempted by, by God's grace, hopefully I'm not a cynic. But, but that, that, that kind of mentality is, is much younger than it used to be. And so we, we need all of us, I don't care what your age is and what your situation is in life, you need the power, Paul is praying for the power of the Spirit, for endurance, patience, and to with joy give thanks to the Father as a lifestyle, giving thanks, aware of what God has done for me. Well, in case we forget what we have to be thankful for, he reminds us, what does he say? Two things that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks, what for? To the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Wow, that is good news. Christianity is a religion that says you are qualified based on what God has done, not based on what you do. It doesn't say qualify yourself. It doesn't say see that you are qualified. It says thank God who qualified you. That is something to be thankful for. You do not walk around with the burden of what must I do to qualify for God's love. He's already qualified you in Jesus Christ. So you are qualified to know God as a Christian. You're qualified to walk with God. You're qualified to walk in the power of endurance and joyful gratitude along with patience. You're qualified to be a godly husband, a godly wife. You are qualified in Jesus Christ to forgive those who have sinned against you. You're qualified to inherit all that God has for us, his inheritance in the saints, all that we inherit in him, the kingdom, the glory of knowing Christ, a changed life, eternity. You're qualified for all of that. You're qualified by the power of God to be free from the grip of that addiction. You're qualified in the power of God to be free from bitterness. This is great news. So thank God that he's qualified you to receive the inheritance of all we receive in Christ among the saints in light. And secondly, he's delivered us, verse 13. 
Thank God he's qualified us. Verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Some of us don't even realize that, but prior to knowing Christ, you were in darkness. We have, like, we have a scale of spiritual experience in our understanding. The Bible doesn't have a scale. It has two realms, dead or alive, darkness or light, Satan or Jesus. I know that sounds simplistic, in Adam or in Christ. These are the two categories. And so, I mean, somebody may give themselves to more darkness than somebody else, perhaps, but the lights were off for all of us. And he's taken you out of darkness. He's using Exodus language here. He's delivered us. It's the language of bringing the people out of Egypt. He's delivered us the new Exodus. He's delivered us out of darkness and transferred us to a new kingdom. What is that? The kingdom of his son. You were part of the kingdom of darkness. Now you're part of the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's redeemed. That's, that's Exodus language. He's redeemed you out of slavery. He's redeemed you out of darkness and he's brought you into the kingdom of his son, which is light and that's something to be thankful for. And if I'm not thankful for that, then I've got to go back to verse 9 and say, Lord, I am praying that you will fill me with the knowledge of your will. I need to know you and what you've done for me. And I need to, you to help me walk that out and help me to bear fruit and then give me more knowledge as that's happening. Put me in that cycle, Lord, of knowing and growing. And it's, it's, it's all rooted in what he has done for us. So what I'm, what I'm pointing us back is to what he's done for us in the cross. He's transferred us from darkness to light. That's the key to knowing God and spiritual growth. It will always be tied to the gospel. If you hear a spiritual growth plan that is not tied to the gospel, it's not Jesus's will for your disciple. It's not his plan for your discipleship. It's not his design for your life. It may be works. It may be any number of things. It may be legalism, but it's not Christ. Because if Christ is talking to you about your growth and knowledge and power, it'll always be tied to what we read here. He qualified you and he delivered you by his son. And he's redeemed and forgiven you. So that's a lot of detail. But really simply, he prays for knowledge. He prays for power. So as you pray for your spouse, your friends, your children... That's, if you can remember nothing else, pray for knowledge that they will know the Lord and walk with him and that they will know the power of God to live out that life, which will include endurance, patience, and gratitude. But if you forget all that, at least you know knowledge and power. This is a template that you could pray. You could take this and pray this for yourself. You could take this and pray it for people in your community group. We'd love it if you'd pray it for the leaders of our church, that we would know God and walk in his power. You can pray it for the struggling Christian. You can pray it for, as C.S. Lewis said, the Christian who's at ease, things are going well. You can pray for anyone. That This is what Paul says, this is how I'm praying for you. And I'm thinking since it was recorded in the Bible, it's a pretty good prayer. It's better than bless so-and-so or I forgot. Okay. It's better than that. I was just thinking about this, man. What, what, what would it be like if an entire church started praying for this? started praying this way for those that we're connected with. Certainly submitting ourselves, first of all, to this. Say, Lord, I, I need this. But then also praying for others this way. What might happen if everybody took on that assignment? That I'm going to pray for everybody in my small group, everybody that I'm connected to, everyone that I serve with or know, 
I'm going to start praying for them in various times, this kind of prayer, that they would know the Lord, that they would, that knowledge would lead to a walk with him. And that walk would lead to bearing fruit. What if everybody was being prayed for in this church, that they were to bear fruit in every good work and that they would know him more through that bearing of fruit? What if we're praying for everybody in the church that they would know the power of the spirit to walk with God, the power of the spirit to endure, the power of the spirit to give thanks, even when there's a thousand things to complain about. There's one thing to give thanks for that trumps them all. Imagine if God answered those prayers. Imagine what that group of people would live like. I'm not saying their circumstances would be easy. Their circumstances might not even change but their hearts in their circumstances would be radically different. There'd come a wind of hope, of humility, knowing God, a joy in bearing fruit, endurance to persevere, knowing that there is a purpose of God in this, just like there was for that little girl, Tessie. There would be great joy in Christ. Imagine with me, And let's do more than imagine. Let's pray that it might be so. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.